This is Hunting Land, the podcast for land hunters and landowners with real-time rut reports, waterfowl migrations, and how-tos for habitat management and land investment. Well, I'm Clint Flowers. I'm sitting here with Joe Baia. And Joe, the rut is on. Yeah, it is going down. I've gotten way too many texts this week of uh, a lot of good deer being killed. This year has been a banner year for large whitetails in Alabama. I had a good weekend myself. I uh, shot a buck Sunday morning at 325 yards. I was pretty proud of that shot. I'd have been a lot more proud if I hadn't missed him twice before that. But hey, you know, third time's a charm sometimes. What yep. about you? How'd your weekend go? I uh, took my five-year-old with me all weekend. We saw a lot of deer, uh, no shooters, but we saw a lot of young, nice bucks, and they were all chasing. Awesome. Yep. Well, it's cranking up. We're going to get that report right now. Let's go talk to Joe Dunn. Joe is with Dunn Sports there in Thomasville, Alabama. Well, Joe, what are you hearing from South Alabama? What's going on with the whitetail rut down there, man? It is wide open. It is now. You need to be in the woods today. (laughs) (laughs) I had a processor that come in yesterday, and uh, that processes the deer around here, and he was showing me picture after picture after picture, you know, of some fine bucks that have been brought in this year. And we were talking about that, like, where have these deer been hiding the last few years? <laughs> right now, it is on. And he, he, was, he was going over how many had been brought in. And the buddies of mine have done kill some big ones, too. And, and they're saying, you know, they're, they're coming up to the patches looking, and then they're gone. You know, so you better be ready. They're just checking for hot does right now. Well, that's a good tip because I've, I've had that happen to me before, you know, when you're, you're sitting on a food plot, which is typically what we do majority of the time in Alabama, you're sitting there and if you got that gun sitting in the corner of your shooting house, uh, not really at the ready, a lot of times those bucks will come up, take a look, maybe, you know, cut across the corner or maybe just walk straight across that food plot. And I mean, if you're not sitting at the ready, you miss your chance a lot of times. Yeah, you, you cannot be daydreaming right now. You don't need to be playing on your phone. You need to have that rifle semi on your shoulder and be keyed up the whole time because, like I said, you, you won't get much of an opportunity. Like I said, they're just coming up. He may stand there for three seconds, 30 seconds or whatever, maybe longer, but most time he's there. And then either you better get the shot, shot off or you're going to be kicking up dirt, walking back to the truck mad, throwing your hat up, whatever. Like I said, this is uh, – we're in prime time right now, and it's really, to me, I think uh, it's a little bit earlier than normal for us, or, or right in there. I guess some years it can be now, but some years it's later, but this year it's right now. Well, just good to hear. I, I, it gets me excited. You know, it's, it's the most exciting time of year, I think, to be a deer hunter. I personally like that first week of both season sometimes to, to really be able to catch up to a buck easily, but it's definitely the most exciting time. And, you know, I think hunting those food sources in the afternoon is always a good strategy this time of year, especially if you've got where you know where some does are. But what about in the mornings? I think that's something a lot of folks struggle with. Where do you see guys having success in the mornings? Are they going right back to those patches or are they kind of hunting the trails leading off of those patches? What do you see that works? There's two things that can help a lot. One is you need your cameras out and you can time him about usually, you know, when he's coming through some of those areas. But, you know, typically, you know, he's going to be running that scrape line. Generally, that's his prime time, early in the morning. But your trail cameras will give you more of a definite, you know, try to pattern him a little bit, which I know this time of year, if he gets with a doe, he might throw his pattern way off, you know, for a, a day or so anyway. But lean toward 
more toward the cameras, but uh, I like to get on those trails out from the food for- sources in the mornings. I'd rather be on a scrape line or on a big ridge overlooking a scrape line. You know, something like that usually does better. Clint, you mentioned you saw some good uh, chasing activity at your place this past weekend. Uh, were you seeing it throughout the day? Uh, most of it was in the afternoon, uh, but he, he's dead on in the morning. I mean, that was the, the place to be is to find that active uh, scrape line and just get on it and be patient, but be ready. And then in the afternoons in the fields that, that loaded up with does, so the highest number of bucks and the ones that had the fewest number of does, so the lowest number of bucks. Makes sense. Pretty easy equation. Well, Joe, thanks for the report this week, man. If folks want to get in touch with you there, how do they do it? Yeah, just call us here at Dunn's at uh, 334-636-0850. Thanks, Joe. We'll talk to you again soon, bud. Thanks, Joe. All right, thank you. Clint, that's exciting to hear the ruts just firing off down there like that. I'm looking forward to my hunt this weekend. What do you think's up, man? There's been really a lot of quality deer killed this year. I mean, I'm just seeing big bucks going down everywhere all my friends are killing them every county's killing them what do you what do you think it is i think a lot of the rain like we've talked about has helped a lot uh at least on antler growth but also you get a lot more hunters in the woods at least deer hunters that used to be duck hunters and it's just <laughs> been a rough year for them so they've had to to fall back on deer so we've they've uh probably got a lot more hunters in the woods that makes sense well let's talk about ducks a little bit we got seth maddox on the line again seth Tell us how these uh, these last couple of uh, or this last front has affected things, and then looks like we've got some decent weather coming up. Uh, wonder if it's going to improve things here for the last little bit of duck season. Good morning, guys. It's uh, we got finally got some cold weather here in Alabama. Uh, been looking forward to this all season, but it's finally getting here with uh, only a few days left in the season. Uh, this, the regular season ends on Sunday. We've probably got a few ducks pushed in from the state from uh, from these fronts but it's probably too little too late. Uh, even though we got some cold weather, we still got a ton of rain uh, with these last couple fronts too. So whatever uh, whatever birds come in to the state, uh, there's uh, plenty of habitat for them. So they're going to be spread out still, uh, even though they're they're coming this way. You know, uh, it has been a just a, a rough year conditions wise, but are there any are there any bright spots that you're hearing about as far as hunter success? Yeah, I mean the hunters uh, that go out, they, they're surprised sometimes when they when they run into birds. Uh, you know, scouting goes a long ways, but there's birds that come down no matter what the the temperature is. They they migrate anyway. So like uh, your your diver species, uh, canvasback, redheads, they're going to migrate no matter what. You know, green winged teal uh, are going to migrate, and most of the time some gabwalls are going to migrate. So it's been an okay season for some people, and it's, and some of these species have saved uh, saved a lot of hunts for people uh, throughout the season. So as bad as it's been, uh, you know, it's not as bad as it could have been. The gadwalls have definitely seemed to save the day for a lot of people hunting in Mobile Bay in that area, and then further south and west in the Mississippi Sound, it seems like exactly like you said, they're they're getting the redheads, canvasbacks, ringnecks, and, and all the other divers that are just really keeping them alive. Where do these birds end up, you know, on a year like this when temperatures have been mild uh, and you were talking last week about how these some of these birds are going north, south, east, and west. You know, we know, wh- I, I know where they nest, obviously. Where are they going to end up? Are, are they still going to go south, or will some of them just never even make it here and then head back to Canada? Uh, I think it all depends on what the weather does over the next, uh, say, uh, month or so, maybe a month and a half. 
if we get a really cold Arctic blast and uh, we get a lot of uh, ice and snow accumulation uh, in the states north of us, then, yeah, those birds will, will have to migrate further south just because there's no open habitat. Uh, they have to, you know, have open water and uh, to feed and, and loaf. Um, if the temperatures stay mild, I think they will probably sit wherever they are right now. Uh, and then once, uh, as the ice and snow uh, start receding further north, they will make their migration back north from there. If you're a landowner that has, you know, a good food source, but the birds aren't going to be here till February, March this year, what do you need to do to make sure that the birds that do come imprint on your property? Some people like to get the water off early, but, you know, on a year like this one, when you're not, we're not seeing many birds, I would wait until a little later. I would wait until at least March to try to take water off your property if you're if you're taking water off your impoundments. Um, and, and just, provide, you know, there should be plenty of food left for birds. If it stops raining, then the, the birds are definitely going to find it for sure, the ones that are here, and if we get any more cold weather. Uh, so, so anything, uh, anything you can do to uh, prolong your, uh, your exposure to those birds uh, that are in the area, then uh, that that'll, will definitely help. That something Clint said there it, it brings up in a question in my mind. He was talking about birds imprinting on a property. There seems to be a lot of kind of contention on the the debate of whether or not you can attract ducks. Meaning, and when I say that, a lot of people that I've talked to believe that that ducks are going to go where ducks are going to go. And if you're able to bring them onto your property when you haven't had them there before, it, they were still passing through it. You didn't uh, really attract those ducks. You have any thoughts on that? Can it, can a landowner, somebody that's got a potential to have habitat, but is thinking about creating it, not sure if they should, if they've never had ducks before, can they create a, a place to have ducks in the future? Yeah, I mean, uh, they definitely can. You know, it's all about location, location, location. So uh, you, you want to be in a good location when you start. Uh, you want to be in a location where there's ducks in the general area, uh, not in uh, a, a desert. So you want to have, you know, wanna, you want to have uh, places where ducks are familiar with. You know, from banding data, we know that some birds come back to the same general areas every year. Uh, and some birds, you know, disperse other 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 areas the next year. So, um, you know, there, there are definitely birds that come back to the same general areas every year. And so if, uh, if you want to create some habitat in that area, you know, I do a lot of technical assistance to private landowners as part of my job. And I tell people, you know, the, the more water you have on the landscape, the better off you are uh, because that's what ducks really need is the water. Uh, on a normal year, uh, which this year has not been a normal year, uh, as far as rainfall goes, you know, the more water you can provide, the better off you are to attract ducks. Seth, if folks want to get in touch with you and, and get some of that technical assistance with the property they're working with, how do they do it? Yeah, just go to our website, uh, outdooralabama.com. Uh, go to our waterfowl page. Uh, all my information is there, uh, phone number uh, and uh, email address. Uh, just contact me and uh, we'll, I'll be happy to set that up. And, uh, you know, at the, uh, this, even though this Sunday is the last, uh, last day for waterfowl season here in Alabama, uh, we do have a special use waterfowl day, uh, that's coming up the next Saturday, February 2nd. So it's uh, the use only hunt that day. Well, that Seth, means I can go shoot ducks, but just take my five-year-old, right? right. <laughs> <laughs> Not quite, but you can take your five-year-old to shoot ducks. <laughs> <laughs> Dang it. <laughs> well, Seth. Thank you again for the, the report. Thanks for all the hard work you do for the birds around our state. We'll talk to you again soon, man. Thanks, guys. 
Hey guys, I get a lot of questions from landowners who want to know, what's my land worth? So I wanted to take a second to tell you about a video series we created explaining everything that goes into land values and how we can assess what your property is worth. Just plug this into your internet browser, bit.ly slash huntingland, just like the podcast. That's bit.ly slash huntingland. Take a look at our video and see what you think. Clint, you know, we're talking with Seth and Seth was talking on the importance of location uh, with being able to draw waterfowl. We were talking to John Ross Havard a few weeks ago and he was talking about, you know, kind of the three rules of land investment, how location is so important when you're talking about that. And it, and it rings true across every, really every aspect of land location is such a big part of what you intend to do with that property. So today we are going to be talking about a subject that we're getting a lot of questions about and and it's really related to land valuation and specifically conservation easements. So you hear that term a lot, Clint, but what what exactly is a conservation easement? It is a voluntary donation of certain uses of a property by a landowner to a land trust or a government agency, but typically in our area, it's to land trust. So they donate certain rights to the benefit of those trusts to protect and conserve their property. Okay. So the, the, the goal of a conservation easement is to conserve the land. What kind of rights would they be donating? It depends. Uh, and, it, and it can change depending on the area, but it could be everything from development, any subsurface mining, uh, surface mining, timber harvest, uh, anything of that nature. Uh, division, you know, you can get as basic or complex with it as you want. All right. So we know what it is. Why does somebody want to do that? Why would they want to put a conservation easement on their property? It's typically a dual benefit of its future, again, conservation, preservation purposes to protect the property uh, for the benefit of the public and their family. Uh, maybe they want to ensure that that property is not cut into lots or mined after their death. So they put the easement on it. Uh, while they can to protect the property, but also in exchange, they get a nice tax deduction for it as well. And for those landowners that can use it, that's a very nice dividend. So you got tax benefits and, uh, you know, tax deductions as, as some of the benefits. What are, what are some of the cons of doing a conservation easement? The cons are somewhat subjective to the potential buyers for your property if you ever go to sell it, because these act essentially like deed restrictions. Uh, are protective covenants in your neighborhood. So they can be protective in a sense in terms of a landowner, the neighbors around it know that certain activities aren't going to happen. But if you're a buyer and you wanted to take part in some of those activities, it could be a con for you. Uh, so it, again, it just depends. Yeah, it's kind of like the difference. That's a good analogy, kind of like an HOA in a neighborhood and those covenants and restrictions. Well, that's good. So today, I think we want to get into how you know conservation easements really can benefit landowners, um, and if it's and if it's the right choice. Uh, when we get into talking about those tax benefits, uh, it really the question becomes: How do we determine the value of a conservation easement? So today we're going to be talking with Kenny Wallace, and Kenny, tell us a little bit about what you do with conservation easements. We have a company, commercial real estate appraisal company uh, called Capital Real Estate Services. Um, we work, uh, we're based in Montgomery, Alabama with offices in Montgomery and Auburn, uh, Mobile and Columbus, Georgia. 
And uh, we work all over the southeast, primarily in central and south Alabama and Georgia. Uh, we do all kinds of appraisal work, but uh, one of our emphasis is valuation of conservation easement. So when we're looking at a conservation easement, Kenny, you know, what what's that first step? If a, if a landowner wants to, he's decided to, uh, he's going to do a conservation easement and Clint, he's going to be taking that, that tax deduction. What has to happen uh, for, for that to be accomplished? Probably the first step and uh, for the purposes of qualification, it's going to be important that the landowner have something that is special or that is unique or that is important from, let's say, a habitat uh, perspective or an ecological perspective. It could be a certain feature or topography or a scenic view. Um, It could be any number of things that, that could make a property worth conserving. But the, the first test, not every piece of property out there is, is a candidate for a conservation easement, however many are, but there, there needs to be something that is worth conserving, uh, something that, that points to value of preserving this in perpetuity. And by in perpetuity, meaning when you place an easement, a conservation easement on a property, uh, the term we use is in perpetuity because it is indefinite. It is It follows the land forever. And so that's where the value of that conservation easement comes into play to the public and to the, uh, like Clint mentioned earlier, the land trust or a municipality, um, whatever agency or uh, organization it might be that holds the easement, that is uh, that protection of something important it is the core principle behind the conservation easement. I want to go back to something you just said, which is really the what kind of properties qualify for a conservation easement. Can you give me a few examples? Sure. Be happy to. The um, As I mentioned, um, not all properties would qualify, but in some way, most or many certainly would. Let's take, for instance, uh, a a piece of property, let's say uh, in Talladega County, Alabama, uh, that that borders the Talladega National Forest and may have a scenic view of Mount Chiha, um, the highest point in the state of Alabama, and uh, certainly one of the scenic vistas and and right at the foothills of the Appalachian Mountains. Um, When you have Cities like Anniston, Oxford, Birmingham, um, even Talladega uh, that are expanding and, and populations are growing and moving out and you're, you're experiencing urban sprawl, uh, something like that piece of property might be extremely valuable from a conservation standpoint in preserving the natural state of that property and those scenic views for the public and and for future generations indefinitely. You might have a piece of property in, um, in so, somewhere down on the Gulf Coast, uh, be it uh, the Mobile Tensaw Delta or be it uh, uh, somewhere 
uh, around Ocean Springs, Mississippi, or or even down into the into the coastal wetlands of South Louisiana, properties that have ecological uh, value, properties that have um, water conservation objectives, things like that. Those types of properties or candidates. It could be just a piece of property that is located outside of a of a major city or just outside or even within that is uh that it's experiencing population growth neighborhoods um, you're losing green space and you're losing you're losing a lot of the the native habitat and kind of the the historical significance of how that land was before all your neighborhoods were developed these kind of properties might be taken by a municipality and turned into a public park. Um, it might be valuable in that sense. Um, so there's there's all different kinds of properties that uh, that that would be candidate. It just depends on exactly what the characteristics of the property are, and as you spoke about earlier, location. That that's a very important component as well. And I'd point out, Joe, that you know when we talk about this, we, we talk about uh, municipalities and government entities a lot, but when we say land trust, those are not government entities. That's typically an organization of private individuals that are like-minded and, and want to uh, reasonably conserve and protect privately owned lands. So uh, just to bring that down a notch, I'm on the board of land trust and I'm a normal guy. Uh, own land, uh, you know, there's certain things I want to preserve about properties that are in our region, in our area, but you don't want to completely restrict the use and enjoyment of that by landowners the way other entities do. So this is a good way to find a balance of achieving your goals and gaining a tax deduction while still protecting your land. It sounds like uh, when you put this conservation easement on your property, you're you're helping conserve particular aspects of the land, but you're not completely limiting it in the sense of that you stop making money on the property. So you could still, uh, in most cases, do farming of some sort, uh, ranching of some sort. Uh, it's generally just kind of limiting like some of the more, you know, maybe something like development or mining things that are really going to disrupt the the habitat of, of the property. Like Kenny's example, development. If you got a piece of property that's in the path of growth and it's got a higher and best use that you could go in there and put a lot of small lots on there that would destroy all that sensitive habitat and beauty, you know, you can conserve the property and again, encounter a nice tax deduction and you just got to determine that value through the services of somebody like Kenny. Well, it sounds like a win-win to me. You're, you're, you're doing something to benefit conservation. You're doing something that can help you uh, with tax benefits. So Kenny, what's next? If, if you've, you've got a property that qualifies, how do you determine what the value of that conservation easement is? The first step would be to hire a qualified and reputable appraiser uh, that uh, I I would highly recommend that has experience with conservation easements. It's a specialized area and uh, not all appraisers are competent in that uh, particular arena, especially the ones that do it more often and and are familiar with the rules and regulations, um, that's going to be important, uh, extremely important to making sure that it's done right. From that point, um, the appraiser will generally 
come to the property and make a physical inspection. Um, they'll determine all the characteristics of the property, get an overview of it, look at it in a more detailed sense as to what is there and how is it there and all the specifics of the property that contribute to its value in the the scenario of before the easement is placed uh, uh, and then what would the potential of the property be and the likely uses of the property be after an easement is put into place. The, uh, you touched on it earlier, the, the, the conservation easement can be highly restrictive or it can be very open and loose and, and non-restrictive. That's all going to depend on the, the wants and desires of the property owner. Um, these documents and, and these, these easements can, can be from the most extreme to very loose. And so a thorough review by the appraiser of the proposed easement docs and, and how those factor into both the usage of the property in its current state and then after the easement, um, those are steps that would be taken and uh, and then there's a there's a, a systematic process from that point. I see what you're saying. That that's another advantage. It seems that that you do have some flexibility. It's not a blanket. This is how conservation easements are done. It's so you, definitely not a one size fits all. There's there's a wide range of restrictions and 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 how it's written um, and what rights the property owner wants to retain and what rights they want to give up. So Kenny, you've got that pre easement appraisal and you've got that post easement appraisal. What what kind of factors go into that pre easement appraisal? What what are you looking at? Are you looking at you know dirt value, timber value? you know, agricultural value, what kind of things go into that? Certainly. As, as with any appraisal, the, the first step should be to determine the highest and best use of the property. And we use the term highest and best use in the industry, but that means simply what is the best and most profitable usage of the property as it's it. That may be for timber production. That may be for residential subdivision development. It may be for uh, industrial purposes. It may be for mining clay, gravel, um, sand, or some other subsurface material. So once you've got that, those components of value, I guess then the landowner is, is going to determine which, uh, which component he's going to conserve. Is that where you get into the post-easement appraisal? Correct. You're determined what are, what are they taking away? That's right. Uh, you're exactly right. The, that, the next step is to appraise the property in the after scenario, which would be after the proposed or, or at that point, hypothetical conservation easement were to be placed on the property what rights have been given away? What restrictions now exist? What types of uses are allowable? And what, what has the property owner given up? Um, those are all factors in the equation of determining what the value of the property is afterwards. 
in most cases, there there is a diminution in value created by giving you some of your rights away. Certainly, the more rights you give away, the the higher level of diminution there is. So, um, as we were talking about previously, the the one size fits all kind of fit for a for an easement. That that's all up to the property owner and and their motivations can can range widely so the the more that you give up the generally speaking the the more of a difference you see in the before and after scenario can a landowner conserve different aspects of his property for different purposes so i get just to kind of maybe oversimplify this but let's say a guy owns property that's it's currently it's got some road frontage part of that property has has a a good area an area that would be good for gravel mining let's say and another area uh say the area of on the road would be good for development. And then maybe the majority of the property is highest and best use would be timberland. Can he conserve the, do, when you're kind of doing that pre-easement appraisal, are portions of that property worth more? Can he conserve them in different ways? Uh, absolutely. There, there can be different highest and best uses over the, over the course of a single property. It certainly can. And, and how those different uses are conserved or not conserved that that can be up to that that's totally up to the landowner but uh, oftentimes that will be something that the landowner and the land trust work out together and that's usually an area where um, where the two get together and decide what do they want to conserve and what rights do they want to maintain and keep so joe we've covered a lot of ground We've determined, you know, what factors can come together here to determine the total value of the donation of a conservation easement. But the question I get a lot is, so in all of that, where am I saving on taxes? And Kenny, you interrupt me here if I mess any of this up. But what I'm hearing is, so you take that pre-easement value and deduct the post-easement value, and that difference is going to be your tax deduction. That's exactly right. That's the value of the conservation easement, which for 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 tax purposes, that that is the the dollar figure that is used for tax calculations. Certainly, our, our accountants out there are, are better equipped to make exactly what those dollar figures equate to in tax deduction. But uh, but yeah, that's exactly right. That's the formula. Joe, did you like how I made Kenny the tax expert in this? So I didn't have a good disclaimer. <laughs> that's right. We'll put a disclaimer <laughs> at the end of the show that if, uh, if yeah. this causes uh, any problems, just contact Kenny. But uh, absolutely not, not not <laughs> a tax advisor. <laughs> but that it, that math is correct, and and a good example of one that that Kenny and I were both recently involved with is you know I was blessed to be a part of a sale and the conservation of about two thousand acres in Baldwin County that. Join the Delta, overlook Tensaw River, uh, and years and years ago, uh, that was a hot area for industrial development, and was originally going to be the site of a power plant, as I understood it. But now, through this process, or what I say, I was involved. I was not able to achieve anything. I was just a, a lucky bystander as a real estate broker. But what was achieved is this property that had great industrial development value but also great ecological value uh, was conserved 
in, in effect, what happened on the ground is you had a property that may have been worth 10,000 an acre as an industrial site, but it was through the donation of a conservation easement was restricted back to its current use of timberland and recreational property at a value of, you know, 2000 to $2,300 an acre, somewhere in that ballpark. So the landowners involved got to recognize that difference uh, to some extent. I'm using round numbers here as a donation value for the property. And the end result was a nice tax deduction and conservation of just some of the most tremendous property uh, in this region of South Alabama. It seems like a really awesome program. Uh, anything you want to add to that, Kenny? I was just gonna gonna say that that Clint, that's a that's an excellent example and and a perfect framework scenario of what a conservation easement is intended for and um, and, and how it works and in, in reality and and in a real world situation. Well, it's uh, it's a program that has a lot of benefits. It seems like it, it really does seem like a, a, a win-win program, you know, that's out there available to folks that, that own land uh, or looking to buy land. Kenny, if folks have more questions about conservation easement appraisal and, and want to get in touch with you, how can they do that? Uh, the best way would be to just call me directly or uh, or email me. Our uh, again, our company's name is Capital Real Estate Services. Uh, we're based in in Montgomery. Uh, again, with offices in Mobile and Auburn and Columbus, Georgia. Uh, I can be reached at our office number is three three four five nine three six zero six zero. An email address is kwallace three at msn dot com. Better spell that that Wallace. It's W A L L I S. I did correct. W A L L I S number three at msn.com. Call or send me a message. We'll get back with you. And uh, I'm truly blessed. People ask me all the time, "What do you like about your job? What do you What do you enjoy the most?" It's such a blessing to wake up every day and to get the opportunity to meet so many wonderful people throughout the the course of your day and your work and to to talk to so many different kinds of people and and different types of people uh, and to see some of these, particularly with the conservation easement work that we do, to see some of the most beautiful properties in the Southeast, it's it's a blessing and, and I'm humbled that I get such a, such a fantastic opportunity and, um, it's a great program and it's got tremendous benefits for lots of different reasons. And, um, if there's anything we can ever do to answer questions or help in any other regard, please don't hesitate to contact. Well, Kenny, thanks for being on the show today. And thanks for sharing us, uh, sharing some insights about conservation easements with us. Uh, hopefully we can talk to you again soon. Clint conservation easements are, uh, I don't know. They seem like, they seem like a win-win to me. What am I missing? Am I missing anything or any, any, any cons? I mean, how does this affect? The only thing I can think of is what if I put a conservation easement on my land and I die or I decide I'd change my mind and I'll, I want to sell my land? How, how does that affect selling land? <laughs> I hate to say this again, but it depends. I mean, it, it's all relative to what rights you donated. Uh, and I hate to use the word restriction, but if you think of it like a deed restriction for those of us that are familiar with those, if you over donated too many rights to where you are, are so restricted that you 
really can't do much except go out there and and hunt it. And I've seen some easements that even restricted vehicle access of any kind on the property. So you'd have to walk out there. You know, those are tough to sell, uh, especially if you can't cut timber, you can't build new roads, things like that. And those are extreme examples. Most people, if you ever think that you're going to sell your property, uh, you know, don't, don't over donate, you know, be conscious of that, be wise about it, donate things that are important to protecting the integrity of the property but don't stop yourself from using it as an investment uh, and, and just be smart about it. Well, that's going to wrap it up for us this week. Folks, we want to hear from you. So email us at pros at landhunting.com. Got a show idea or a question you want us to ask? Just email us at pros at landhunting.com. We'll see you next week.